Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion about current affairs in China. We're coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studios here in Beijing. I'm your host, Kaiser Guo. Jeremy Goldcorn is on holiday in South Africa this week, and he'll be checking in with us with an audio postcard from Africa. Joining me again this week is Bill Bishop, a tech entrepreneur, prolific blogger, and my favorite guy to follow on Twitter for all things Chinese. How are you, Bill? Great. Thanks, Kaiser. I'm also really pleased to welcome Will Moss, who writes the blog ImageThief.com, one of my big favorites. Will is currently on sabbatical from his regular gig at a big PR firm, where he's a director in their corporate practice, and he's working on his Mandarin right now. Say hi, Will. Hi, great to be here. Hey, so today we're going to be focusing on a couple of things. First off, are we witnessing a thaw in relations between Beijing and Washington over China's apparent willingness to support sanctions on Iran over nuclear weapons development? We're also going to talk about China's views on Iran, the complexities of Beijing's relationship with Tehran, and we'll talk a little bit about the Treasury Department's possibly related decision to delay a pronouncement on whether to label China as a currency manipulator. Next, we're going to move on to a discussion about the latest scandal to rock China involving a number of illnesses and deaths among infants and toddlers that appear to be related to bad vaccinations. And we'll tap Will's expertise as a PR man to see whether China has actually learned anything from the uh, tainted milk scandal that broke in 2008 and brought an ignominious end to one of China's largest dairy producers, San Lu. So welcome, guys. And uh, let's just jump right in and start talking first about, about Iran. Um, you know, it's probably wrong for us to look at the China-Iran relationship chiefly through the lens of the impact on U.S.-China relations, but that's exactly what we're going to do here anyway. <laughs> so let's let's lay out quickly. Bill, why don't you take a whack at this? Uh, the context of 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 this, the the backdrop of Sino-American relationships. What what since September when Obama was here? In terms of what appears to be a rise in tensions in the yeah, the I mean, U.S.-China that, relationship. That's the background that, you know that we're all talking about Iran with, right? Right. There's certainly been more obvious points of tension in the U.S.-China relationship over the last few months between the weapon sales to Taiwan, the uh, Obama's visit, which which seemed to be uh, less successful than was hoped, the uh, pressures over the valuation of the renminbi uh, and Google. And I think it, at least in the press, was played off as there's this big freeze and there's big problems in the U.S.-China relationships, which clearly there were tensions, but when have there not been tensions? Right. Sort of right. ebbs and flows. So here we'd float in with a big pile of stuff to deal with. But there seems to be this sort of established media narrative now that, that things have been really rocky and that things may be sort of on the way to release over Iran and uh, Hu Jintao's upcoming visit to the United States to attend the uh, nuclear summit in, in, in D.C., right? Well, I think the choice of words there is interesting. The word narrative, you know, it, it, it's... I think it's always helpful to take a moment and consider where there might be a difference between what the consensus-driven narrative in the media is and what the actual situation might be. The press coverage 
over the last few months has been pretty negative, turning around a bit in the last couple of weeks. If there's this sort of burst of sunny optimism around, uh, I guess, uh, Hudentau's upcoming – Right, exactly. The, the, the nicer weather and, and Hudentau's upcoming visit to Washington. I always thought it would be interesting, you know, to kind of – know where the real baseline in this relationship is and see how much these these chills and thaws actually move the baseline of reality compared to what gets reported in the media. But it's hard to know. Yeah. You know, I, I wonder, too, whether we're not setting ourselves up for possible disappointment here. Uh, when we look at China's relationship with Iran, I mean, they're in a tough spot. Uh, Iran is an important strategic partner for China. I mean, is China going to ratchet up sanctions as in, you know, in, in hopes of currying favor with the U.S.? Well, I, I think it, if China decides to go along with pretty t- tough shank- sanctions on Iran at the U.N., I think it's part of it will be to go along with the U.S., though part of it will be to avoid an Israeli attack, which could cause all sorts of havoc in the Persian Gulf, which would be very uh, destabilizing to China's economy so if it cuts off oil. Either way they go, it's about defending oil interests. Well, there's a, I, mean, there, there, I think there's plenty of issues that they have to deal with. And, and of course, oil is pretty important. The uh, Times of London had a story a couple of days ago out of their Tel Aviv bureau that uh, in the last, last month, an Israeli senior intelligence guy came to Beijing to brief China on its uh, most recent intelligence about Iran's efforts to enrich uranium. Uh, apparently, someone is in town this week or next week, again, from, from the Israeli military intelligence. And then a Chinese general went to Israel to look at the Air Force to be briefed on what they could do. So I think Israel is trying to tell China, look, if there aren't real comprehensive sanctions with a bite, there's a pretty high likelihood that we're going to attack. This is interesting. Um, first of all, I think it's worth pointing out that I have no qualifications whatsoever to discuss this issue in any kind of substantive way. But but I'll look at it from my area of expertise, which is as a, a communications person. And China has always been very, very aware of the symbolism involved when it takes international steps, certainly uh, aware of the symbolism involved in things like sanctions and actions taken by the United Nations. And and historically, it's been very cautious about doing this. And it seems to me if there was a real nascent threat that back channels would be the much preferred way to handle something like this rather than sort of breaking with what's been a tradition of a hands-off approach with regards to many of these international affairs. I think for China, it's probably sanctions are the least bad choice. So I think increasingly what they're being presented with is if we can't put in place a real a re, a comprehensive sanctions regime that actually has teeth, then something is going to happen in terms of using force, which is then is a much more of a risk. I think there's a lot more risk for China in that scenario than if they go through the – the reality is if, if, if there are going to be sanctions at the UN, you know that of course the Chinese will do their best to drag it out, to water it down, to put all sorts of holes into it so that effectively it, it won't really – it'll just buy time and keep pushing it down the road and hoping that there's some other thing that resolves this right. out of – falls out of the sky. A weaken and delay strategy. Right, exactly. Well, this, this raises an interesting question though and, and I'll, I'll throw this to both of you guys. If China was in the position, position of having to support sanctions – would that be a, a precedent that they wouldn't want to set or that would come back to haunt them in terms of the way they typically pursue foreign policy, which, yeah, is, which is your internal affairs or your internal no, They have supported sanctions, but they've tended to, tended to be watered down. They, the sanctions the, that they supported last year were, were you know, they did not include petroleum. They did right. not include, right. It was just pretty, about pretty, dual pretty, use pretty devices. Yeah. It was symbolic, right? Dual and, use technologies and about weapons, right? Right. And then and certain things like they, they abstained from the 91 vote over the first Iraq war. I guess as part of a deal with the U.S. where the U.S. 
restarted some certain uh, relationships post Yeah, but it, an abstention is so a that different was a deal. animal. And, and what well, but you can still get the U.S. or the U.S. in the West or the U.S. and Russia in the West can get sanctions approved through the UN Security Council just so long as China doesn't vote right. against right. them. Right, doesn't veto them. So that's sort of their way of saying, we didn't really vote for them, but go ahead and make it happen. Bill, how is this being reported in the domestic press? Is there a lot of attention? Be- is there a lot of ink actually devoted to Iran at all? I, I've I've looked for it, and I I've not actually, I don't have not seen a lot in the Chinese press. Right? Is that surprising to you, or is that is that normal? I mean, well, I, I think I think from the Chinese perspective, right? I mean, sort of to what Will was talking about the whole PR, sort of the image the projection and the communication yeah. strategy. There's the external communications, there's the internal communications. I think China probably doesn't want to talk too much about what might happen in Iran in case they have to cut some deals, and then how do they explain it to the domestic audience and potentially look weak or look like they somehow. Mm. Were, were forced into some sort of a con- quote-unquote concession from the U.S. Or the, or the West. I wouldn't be surprised at all to see domestic coverage of that kind of thing downplayed and as and when there was an actual development. Right. I'd be very, very interested to see how it was presented to domestic audiences and right. how the Chinese government framed it. They seem to be actually sort of preparing people for the inevitability of acquiescing in some sort of, 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 of sanctions. It's just – it's a question of how much – Teeth. This is how many right. teeth. But I think I think they sh- and I think the point of these Israeli visits has been, if if they're as reported, is to clearly make the point to China that we're not screwing around and that you need to understand that we have a certain uh, time period within which we're willing to pursue the diplomatic avenues, but that if after a certain period of this certain deadline we still don't have sanctions that are working, all bets are off, right. and that is very. Has could have potentially a very deleterious impact to your position in the Middle East and your economy. Back in February, I, I passed around, I don't know if you guys saw it, uh, a report from the International Crisis Group. It was probably penned by their main rep here, Stephanie Albright. Yeah, Albright. I always want to say Albright because, you know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Stephanie is is a very, very – she's an excellent writer on, on – especially on uh, Chinese foreign policy related things. She's done some great reports on China and North Korea. This one on Iran is is particularly good, I thought. And uh, one of the things that she suggests, in it, and she's repeated this in, in interviews that she's done with CNN's Jamie Flora Cruz and other people, uh, that China just sort of is instinctively averse to sanctions as, as a, a, a blunt instrument of foreign policy. And um, it's especially so when we've got so many interests, you know, when, when China has so many interests tied so closely to Iran. Let's let's just, just for, for the listeners – review um, what, what some of those are. I mean, obviously, China is a major importer of, of Iranian oil. Um, I think that the, the latest figure that I saw was about 11.4% of total oil imports are from, from Iran. China imports about 52% of its, of its total oil consumption right now. And so I've seen the figure go as high as 15.5%. Interestingly, though, I think Reuters reported recently that just in the first two months of, of 2010, in January and February, uh, there was a significant decline in oil purchases from Iran. A lot of the experts that Reuters interviewed were quick to point out that this was not a trend necessarily, that this, this could be an aberration. And uh, one of the traders that they interviewed said that he had been under no political pressure to reduce imports from, from Iran. Uh, but what do you see in all this? Do you think that, that uh, China is willing to sort of jeopardize a major source of, of, of oil uh, well, clearly, they seem to be trying to uh, diversify their sources of oil, as any you know rational, any rational actor responsible would right actor now. would do. I mean, and there have been reports that um, the U.S. and and Saudi Arabia have promised China uh, 
in, increase in oil from Saudi Arabia above and beyond Saudi's, Saudi Arabia's OPEC quota in the event that something happens with their supply from Iran. So there stuff – I'm sure there's lots of stuff going on that we don't know about where China is on its own and then with help from people trying to convince or countries trying to convince China to get on board with sanctions that your supply of oil will be relatively unscathed. I'm going to go way out beyond my area of expertise here and, and, and just venture a question based on this, which is even if you know the U.S. and Saudi Arabia have vouchsafed for a, a relatively uninterrupted flow of oil to China, I, I, what impact on global oil prices would there be if Iran's oil went off stream? Because that's going to have a big impact here and everywhere else. Chinese government subsidizes oil, but that would be a, a, a substantial the, 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 bill. The, 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 the bigger, implicit uh, idea right now, I think, is that, that if we do uh, impose restrictions on, on Iranian oil exports, the, there's going to be a lot of pressure on the other Gulf states to increase their, their production quotas to keep oil prices down. And and the, the alternative scenario is in the event that there's an Israeli strike or set of strikes that then leads to a much bigger uh, conflict within the Persian Gulf and potentially disrupt shipping, which is I think Iran will do, then the oil spike is going to be much larger than sanctions than a sanctions-driven oil spike. Yeah, but that is quite a fuzzy calculation. It's a, it's a might happen against a will happen. That's why oil is probably you know, up around <laughs> 90 bucks a barrel. I mean a lot of this you got to remember. I mean the oil market's very smart. A lot of this is actually probably already somewhat sure. priced it's into the market. Anyway. And then, frankly, I think if they were just sanctions versus – an Israeli strike, you'd probably see the price of oil come down. Probably so. Because you'd lose some of that risk premium in the price of oil. Exactly. You know, just just from a a pure strategic point of view, when you're playing the sort of strategic triangle game, uh, it's a game of sort of jockeying for position. And the worst position to be in uh, in any permutation of the strategic triangle is pariah, right? When you have two hostile actors who uh, are allied against you. The uh, best is to be pivot. And it seems right now that China is in that position, pivot, where they're, they can, they're in a position where they can extract concessions from both the United States and from Iran. Why would they willingly give that up? What, what, is, there, is there a compelling logic that says, look, I mean, look, I'm not that scared of an Iranian bomb or an Islamic bomb. Uh, I have a, a booming trade with Iran. You know, they're a, a great export but market. That's why the, the recent exchange of the Israel are interesting because I think that's may very well be what China is doing and trying to play what they can see to have – where they think they have a lot of leverage. The reality is is I think they have less leverage than they think. And if Israel says, screw it, we're going to go you know, do what we need to do to protect our country, mm-hmm. you know, China, has, China runs the risk of overplaying its hand as a pivot because I think – again, I think the real leverage is – I mean China is going to have suffered very, very large amounts of damage to its interests if there's actually a war in the Persian Gulf. Obviously, that's that's the wild card there. I mean, what Israel will do. But you know, I mean, we've you, you, we've watched it. I mean, the Chinese are very good negotiators. They are very good at maximizing their real and perceived leverage, and in, frankly, in many times, actually getting much more than they frankly may have deserved based on the leverage they have. And I don't think they'll willingly surrender one no. more iota of influence than they have to. Uh, for this no process. rational state would. Right. Now, so what does this mean for uh, U.S.-China relations then? I mean, are we looking at a meaningful concession here? What was, what was Treasury's decision to delay uh, by as much as three months, I think, the decision on, on whether to name China a, const- uh, a currency manipulator? Do you think this is part of some tit-for-tat bill? Do you have, a, do you have thoughts on that? <laughs> I, I mean – Go ahead. Go ahead. I think Obama you – know, uh, President Obama is doing this nuclear security summit uh, next week. And if China weren't there, I think it would pretty much – 
it wouldn't destroy the summit, but it would certainly make it much less, much less impactful. And I think there was no way that, that Hu Jintao was going to go to the U.S. if two or three days later he was going to be branded a currency manipulator. I so, totally agree with that. So, right. so whether or not this, this delay in the currency report is related – and, and the, the nuclear security summit is one of Obama's big – I think I – I don't want to call it one of his hopes for his legacy, but it's clearly one of his primary foreign policy goals. So that may be the only reason. It may also be about Iran. It may also be that give China a little more time, be quiet for three months, and maybe they'll do something on their own. Yeah. I mean, the answer is nobody knows why it was delayed except for the people who delayed it. Exactly. I do think it was important for the credibility of the summit to ensure that China attended. I think it would have been completely empty without China's participation. And so there was a strong interest in, in, in ensuring that they'd be there. I don't think that that would necessarily lead to a change in whatever conclusion is going to be drawn. I'm sure that that might lead to a delay just to buy everybody a little bit of breathing room. We've seen that delay for breathing room before, though, uh, prior to Obama's visit to China. Uh, He said that he wouldn't be meeting with the Dalai Lama until later. He'd, He'd sort of push the meeting back. And that's a pretty uh, common diplomatic with anyway, right? tactic. I mean, he met with them anyway. But you, how close events are in sequence to each other is also symbolic. And it makes a big difference to separate things in time. Um, China will certainly watch how things the American government does are juxtaposed against things that it's doing with them and things that are important to its relationship with the U.S. It will certainly watch that. And the U.S. government is sensitive to that. But moving things around isn't changing them. It isn't changing the conclusions. And what's going to matter is what the report ultimately comes out and says and what the Chinese government chooses to do or not do in the intervening two or three months. So what's your prognosis? What do you think is going to be happening? Uh, I mean, it's really anyone's guess. But about the RMB or about what? No, no, no. Well, uh, that's that's a few months away still. But I mean, I, I think the most optimistic scenario, we're not looking at a, 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 a very sizable revaluation anytime very, very soon. Not when there's this much spotlight. I mean, it's. I, I was at a uh, an international summit at one point where there was a Chinese central banker. A few years, a few years ago, but I think it's still true. He said about revaluation that it's the sort of thing that you can't do when everyone is expecting you to do it. But when when, when pressure's off, when attention's gone, then we're on to something else too. And so no one ever sort of gets right. around, comes around to actually. What's also it. interesting about this discussion is it's not about making China not be a currency manipulator. It's just about making China manipulate it more in the U.S.'s favor. Right. The real solution long term is to actually have the renminbi float. And then there are certainly plenty of smart people who actually think the renminbi might devalue. They're in the minority, but I think we've learned over the last three, four years that the the general economics expert consensus <laughs> tends not to necessarily be the right approach. So, in terms of what's going to happen, I'd say max three to five percent revaluation maximum, because there are lots of problems that will happen in, especially around employment and stability in China, if there's a revaluation. It would be very interesting to know what, if any, discussion has happened behind the scenes about this because there'll be some place in there will be an amount that's acceptable to everybody that buys time for Barack Obama, that gives them something to stave off Congress that the Chinese can live with and and where that is would be very interesting to find out. But you've seen, I mean, the Chinese press has been talking about these. They've done these stress tests in various industries, primarily export-focused industries and you know, I think it was what a two or three percent revaluation would cut profits by fifty percent in certain industries, and and of course would lead to layoffs. So I think I'm actually not very optimistic about a good outcome here because the amount that China can revalue without causing some pretty significant pain in its economy 
is probably not going to be enough to satisfy. I mean, we, we have midterm elections in the U.S. I mean, you people China people, will be an issue. And China is already an issue. And China is an easy issue. It's an easy target. It's going to be a rough election. Things are bad in the U.S. The economy is not good. People are pissed off. People blame China. Right or wrong, they blame China. It's, again, it's an easy target. So I think that a three, say it's a three or five percent revaluation. I don't think that's going to help at all. And I think it's going to be a pretty rough summer when Congress gets a hold of this issue. Just very quickly back to Iran, I want to make a couple of plugs here just to make sure that people uh, you know, who are interested in the issue can read up. I mentioned Stephanie Klein-Albrant. Uh, her International Crisis Group study is available. We'll make that available on the site through a, a link. Uh, I also want to point you to a blog that I stumbled across actually through footnotes in that report called The Race for Iran, and just theraceforiran.com, uh, which I thought was uh, very, very well written. And um, Robert Baer's new book, uh, it's, it's quite controversial. It's called The Devil We Know. It's actually a couple years old. Right. It's, I read it's, it. It's, it's, a couple, very good, yeah. it's a very good book. It's, 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 right. If it, if it teaches you anything, it's that we know really very, very, very little right. about Iran. But an excellent book, though. Robert Baer is an ex-CIA guy. He was actually the, the basis for the character that George Clooney played in Syriana. Right? So, but he didn't get blown up, I no, take he, it. He didn't. Right. No, he's still around and writing. Yeah, good for him. Well, let's uh, move on to the next topic here. Uh, actually, we have a quick postcard uh, on the topic of Iran from Jeremy in South Africa. Let's give that a quick listen. Hi, this is Jeremy Goldcorn with a postcard from Africa for the Seneca podcast. Behind me, you may be able to hear the waves of the Indian Ocean crashing into the east coast of Africa at KwaZulu-Natal. Today, I'm just going to speak about one simple thing, which is African and third world attitudes towards Iran and its nuclear program. I think you'd be hard pressed to find more than 10 people on the entire African continent who care whether Iran has a nuclear bomb or not. I think in South America and across most of Asia, you probably find similar attitudes. The neurosis, the worry, the fear about Iran having a nuclear bomb is confined to Western Europe, America, and Israel. There are not very many other people on the entire planet who care about it. I think that fact is worth bearing in mind when discussing China and its actions and attitudes towards the Iranian nuclear program. With that brief thought, this is Jeremy Goldcorn signing off from the east coast of Africa for the Seneca podcast. Zajian. Okay, well, welcome back, and um, thanks, Jeremy, for that. Um, the next issue that we want to move on to is uh, the latest scandal that broke last month about illnesses and deaths of infants and young children that were mainly in Sanxi province, although the crisis has now spread to Jiangsu as well, apparently, evidently linked to bad vaccines, vaccines that, according to one report, were left out in the sun on a very, very hot summer day and uh, seem to have caused viral encephalitis, Epilepsy. And do we actually other. know what the vaccines were for? I we do, we we yeah, they were Hep B, rabies, Japanese encephalitis. Okay. Right. On on March seventeenth, the the newspaper, the China Economic Times, the the Zhongguo Jingji Shibao, uh, put out a series of six investigative reports. Or they they started coming out that day by one of their veteran um, investigative reporters who were themselves a very rare breed in China. Uh, this guy, Wang Keqin, wrote a very scathing indictment about the company that supplied these, about the uh, the health 
uh, administration in, in Shanxi province itself for sort of outsourcing this to a private company. Which was either controlled or related to one of the yeah, bureaucrats, absolutely. one of the officials. <laughs> the company in question is called Huawei Shidai. Um, so, Bill, uh, Will, you've both been following this story. Um, let's start with um, Will. What's your general assessment? I, what I'm really curious about is the way that, that this has been handled from a communications perspective. Uh, it doesn't seem to have been become as big of a story as most people probably anticipated initially. When it first broke last month, I think most people saw this as another melamine scandal, uh, a, a huge, huge debacle. Does there seem to be learning from, from the San Luis crisis from I'm ago? not sure that the reason why this hasn't blown up as big, or at least hasn't blown up as big yet, is because of great lessons that were learned from a couple of years ago. So much is, you know, maybe the luck's been on their side this time. Um, for one thing, although this is, you know, this is potentially a very serious situation and it touches some real emotional danger spots, in particular kids, which is always electric anywhere and especially here, um, the the milk thing spread and went nationwide very, very fast. And, you know, that's something that affects virtually every family. Every family in the country is using milk products and is giving their kids milk if they have kids in the family. Um, so I, I think that, you know, the potential for that one to drive the level of attention it did was 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 merited. Whereas in this case, you know, if you'll you'll know if your family hasn't had any of those vaccines recently. So far, it's geographically limited. Um, and so I think that's been one of the contributing factors. I mean, the other thing is, is, you know, how vigorous the government has been both in taking action and also in perhaps controlling the mainstream media fallout from the story. I'm not so sure about the action yet. Obviously, they you know, they sent an investigative team in to go to go look at this. That team has come back, I guess, just in the last day or two and said there wasn't a, a relationship they can find between the kids who were reported sick and the vaccines. Yeah, I'm but, not sure if that was the same group. I, I know the Ministry of There Health, were a couple of teams right. in there, I believe. But the original news article, the, the journalist, Wang Keqing, didn't he change the names of the people involved? So yeah. it wasn't clear how these investigative teams would find these affected children. Well, and that, that, was, that was really to. strange. Right? This gets to the from, point where yeah, I'm going to go to, which is it, it, which is – you know, there may very well be resolute action taking place, but if there's a gap in trust of the institutions involved, then I think it's difficult to control the scandal. And I think the historic problem has been the level of trust in, in, in the institutions the, the involved. The 15-minute press conference? The 15 Right. <laughs> yeah. The press conference that lasted only 15 minutes. But they handed up a scapegoat during that. Is that correct, though? Li Wenyuan, who was the former director of right. the Center for Disease Controls in Sanji Province, was he indicted, actually? Was he? I think he's been either swung way or he's somehow under investigation. Well, and, and that, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a time-honored tactic to find somebody's head to put on right. the plate. And, you know, it can help. But, you know, the, here's the thing that, that, that's going to determine how this situation unfolds in the coming weeks. One of the other problems with the whole melamine scandal was that new revelations kept on trickling out. The problems were discovered in other products. Problems were found to be more widespread than they were. There was this stream Cascading of, or, right, of new information right. coming out. One of the classic rules of crisis management is you get all the bad news out now because right. if stuff trickles out over time, it, it destroys your credibility. It right. preserves the bad news. It causes but a snowball I think effect. isn't one of the rules of crisis management, which government is 
Get rid of all the bad news. Get rid now. of all the bad news. But the problem is whether or not that can successfully happen. Maybe that's one of the lessons they learned from the San Lu case was how to get rid of a lot of the bad but news. Here's, 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 that's what I worry about. Here's where the risk is. Well, and maybe. But you know, the, uh, by definition, nobody knows when a cover-up is successful. But I think what's going to be interesting here is to see whether more revelations boil out either out of Shanxi or Jiangsu. If, right. it, if, if or it is Hubei. in Jiangsu now and it's spreading, this is going to be very, very well, interesting because that might be the beginning of more revelations popping up here and there. And that's the kind of thing that could blow this thing up. Well, the, the, the Jiangsu case, right? It's this, this company called Yenshen, which is a big, uh, quite well-known vaccine manufacturer. Sure. And they've actually arrested seven people. They've also arrested uh, a mid-level official in the, the State Food and Drug Administration last week. Unclear if it's directly related to the vaccines, but this person apparently took over a million RMB in bribes. So here's the challenge in this situation. There's two ways this thing goes right now. Um, one is it stays one or two districts and one or two companies' problems, right? It, 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 they're isolated problems. Um, and that's a very different animal than all of a sudden the whole edifice is called right. into question. If well, the whole industry – and this is what happened with dairy. Right. Dairy progressed from being one or two companies you know, and, and, and San Luis right, supply chain to being the entire well, let me, industry. Let me, let me add to what I was going to say because so this, is, this, is, this is what I want you. So you see Shanxi, right? And then you, you – know, not the same province, not the same company. You see Jiangsu. There's another vaccine manufacturer in Hebei who also did rabies vaccine that has, has gotten into trouble. Um, I actually had heard about, I believe it was the same company from a friend of mine, another friend of mine who runs a, he's trying to develop a vaccine. And he, he called me a couple months ago and said, hey, Bill, do you know any investors who would want to buy, uh, who, who'd want to buy into a, a vaccine manufacturing plant that has all the equipment, has all the processes, but they just screwed up on one batch by cutting corners and now they're going to lose their license. And they have a bunch of loans, <laughs> so they're going bankrupt. So you can get it really cheap. So this was probably, um, this is a Chinese friend of mine. This was probably, I think it maybe November. And I didn't really think about it, right? And then this did, news did, came did out. Did you find a buyer? I think that's what well, we all I, I just told him, you know, I, I just told him I really don't think that uh, uh, foreign investors are going to want to touch something like that given that's what's been going on. Toxic. But I mean, the other thing, so, so this was this was in Hebei, right? You have Jiangsu, you have Shanxi. Last year when the whole H1N1 vaccines were being pushed. I have a, a guy I've known for a long time here who – a, a Beijinger and the, the put it this way, the party and the government have been extremely good to him. And we have lots of fun arguing about China and the US. And anytime anything comes up about China that's negative, he will immediately jump to defend it and get really pissed off and then we'll drink, right? Put on the issues of when <laughs> when the issue of H1N1 virus vaccine came up and I asked him if he was gonna have his his kid get it, I have never seen him get push out so much invective about how no way it is so corrupt. Yeah, the no way I will trust one, my no children way, right. with this vaccine made in China. It was really, it's really sort of. Oh, scary. my wife was the same way. She said no, she's but, fine but, with having them inoculated with the U- U.S. vaccine at, at, at the you know uh, at, at Beijing family. But but, but this family. is but this is my point though, right? So you see these little little you, now we have big. Thing okay. in China, so we've seen little things pop up. Why, given the whole thing with the San Lu, with the milk case, why would, why would, if you were a parent with a child about to get an inoculation or vaccine, why would you not be safe? And if you have the means, assume that the entire vaccine infrastructure is problematic and that you let's, don't want let's to talk get about what some of the reasons I'm sure are. That many right. people will do that. You go to any sure. of the big hospitals, but in China, if you're poor, you be, can't. If like we yeah. can go, I'll go afford to take our kids mm-hmm. to get Western vaccines. If you can't, what do you do? So you know what's funny? It's really, here, actually, it's really scary. This is a serious issue, and in many ways, perhaps it's more it's, important it's, than the milk issue yeah. because of the social benefits from a well-developed vaccine problem, right? What happens if you blow your herd immunity? Vaccines are always sensitive because people get paranoid about injections. They get paranoid about side effects. The U.S. has an 
anti-vaccination movement. Absolutely. Uh, autism, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, which, uh, you know, I mean... We're not going to talk about that here. Yeah, let's not get sucked into that because it, <laughs> it only goes downhill. But uh, but this is, I mean, it's an emotional issue. You talk about the health of your children. If people do connect the dots here, if the whole edifice gets called into question, yeah. if people stop vaccinating their kids, you start getting serious public health ramifications. So there's every... The government yeah. has every interest it, to try to manage the situation. The question is whether it's managed by addressing problems with the system or whether it's just suppressed. Well, they executed the former head of the State Food and Drug Administration well. and then they, they sure put his number two in jail for life. And, and you know, it looks one of the one of the concerns is maybe the people who replaced them were less focused on fixing the system and more on the fact that this was their Well, their this was this was a problem right? that I mean, that's it happened three years ago, three about. or four years ago. I mean, this was a 2006, 2007 problem. So right. it's an institutional Let's, reform and it's an institutional But, but there's a lot of credibility well, let, 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 with, hang with the I want to take that. this back a little bit and, and look at some of the why, – why are we facing these problems in the first place? Uh, the, it used to be there are two, two types of vaccines that are given in China. There are the type that are free and mandatory and those are sort of type 1 vaccines. And then there are type 2 vaccines which are, are uh, voluntary. You know, they are, they are not mandatory and they are paid. Uh, about four or five years ago, they, they decided to – allow private contractors to take over the type 2 vaccination. Uh, this is some, something that uh, an author that I like, uh, George Lakoff, talking about in the United States, calls privateering. It's when a, a state sort of divests itself of something that it was uh, normally... Maybe the U.S. would know nothing about that. Right, no. of course. Right, right. <laughs> no, I mean, it's the same thing that we have with like sort of uh, private or drug companies doing their own testing instead of the... Right. the uh, Drug administration. And then hiring people from the F- – what a surprise. Hiring yeah. people from the FDA, FDA to, to work for them, approve it. I mean, you know, we've seen, we've seen issues in the U.S. Right. as well. It's, or, you know, uh, it's a very lucrative industry. Our there military, are a lot of opportunities you know, for – Blackwater take over our you yeah. know, military. There are a lot of motivations or incentives to cut corners and or, you know, buy, buy approvals whether or not you deserve them or not. Right. And so and I think this US really sort of underpins the problem that we're talking about. I mean, well, it's this, just is the institutional, it to, this is the institutional right. trust issue at work and that's a very, very big deal here and it's not just limited to this industry. I, I think there's a real – you know, people like – like to talk about the fact that there's a lot of trust in the central government, and I think by that people sort of mean the sort of top leaders have have an aura about them. Um, but institutions here, it seems to me, have 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 often suffered from a, a trust deficit, and this causes real problems when you have situations like the melamine crisis or like this vaccine crisis because these are the organizations that people need to trust to solve the problems and regulate the industries. And if that trust isn't there, you're going to run into real problems. Especially when it involves the health of your children. And that I think is, I mean, especially when it involves the credibility of the government, which has already made a big change at the State Food and Drug Administration because of previous problems. And so I think it's, I certainly hope it's limited to Shenxi and Jiangsu, but I think even if it is, I'm not sure we'll ever know it is bigger because it's actually, I think, a much more sensitive issue than, than melamine. And so there's much more incentive to keep most of the news out of but it, off it, the internet it and out of the But it doesn't press. seem to have the legs that that, that Melamine had. I, I hope mean, not. It, well, yeah, it, it, yeah, the, my watch, sense is watch that, this space, you right. know. Right. Um, it, 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 it can take time for these things to develop. But the other thing is, you know, to what level have the control rods been dropped into the media reactor? You know, and, and what do you mean in terms of just well, basically the, 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 the directors have gone out saying do not touch the you story. Know, you'll take Xinhua coverage of this story. And, yeah, and, that's and, it. And uh. That's it. And, uh, you know, but and it, so it'll be, you know, the, it'll be interesting to see 
what sort of boils up around the margins over the next few weeks. Um, it, you know, it may, you know, sometimes things die down. You don't, you, things you expect to go fully radioactive will die down. They just, and sometimes it's, it's hard to tell why that's happened, why something catches fire emotionally or in the, in the, in the, in, in the public conception, sometimes in defiance of all attempts to control it. Um, uh, I mean, what Bill said is right. This is a potentially very, very emotional issue. It's kids, it's medicine, you know, it's vaccinations. Um, it'll be interesting to see where it goes. Yeah, let's, let's really hope it's just limited to these two or three places. Yeah. You know, the thing in Johnson, though, was a different problem than what in Shanxi. Shanxi was about how they stored it. It wasn't refrigerated. The the, the, the Johnson one is actually where they were uh, is how they call them, mm. where they were actually swapping out, you know, swapping out ingredients or taking out some of the stuff you really needed to make the vaccine have efficacy. That's right. right. You know what's interesting about the Shanxi and situation? Then figuring out a way to get it approved anyway. Wasn't the story that they were put in a warm room because the stickers certifying yeah. them? This is this is yeah, this w- like wooden stick. Wooden stick. It's not refrigerated. The point was they had to prove that the vaccines were genuine so that people would trust them, and therefore, you know, there's there's some vast and cosmic irony happening there. <laughs> Yeah, that's a totally inappropriate laughter right there. But uh, actually, I think that's about all we have time for today. But thanks so much, guys, for coming in. Um, I'd like to remind you that you can find links to some of the sites and stories that we mentioned in the podcast at uh, http popupchinese.com slash lessons slash Seneca. While you're there, leave us a note or drop us an email at Seneca at popupchinese.com and tell us what you'd like to hear us talk about, recommend some guests you'd like to have on the show, or let us know how you think we can make this podcast more useful to you. So once again, thanks to Bill and Will for joining me, and I look forward to seeing you guys again. Uh, And I look forward to seeing you all, listeners, here for another discussion of current affairs in China. I'm Kaiser Guo for the Seneca Podcast. Goodbye. (laughs) 